Section 4 of The Outline of Science, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Outline of Science, Volume 4, by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 27, Bacteria, Part 4. Paragraph 8, Manifold Activity of Bacteria. It is not possible here to do more than mention a few of the more striking examples of bacterial activity, especially insofar as they affect human welfare. In recent years, the investigations of specialists in various fields of industry and sanitation have resulted in an enormous increase of the kinds distinguished and named. Besides proteid putrefaction, many other similar processes are accomplished by bacteria. The decomposition of cellulose, the woody fiber of plants, is the constant work of certain kinds of bacteria in ponds and marshes where vegetable refuse accumulates, and is accompanied by the liberation of marsh gas, CH4, of sulfuretted hydrogen and sometimes of phosphoretted hydrogen. The formation of acetic acid or vinegar from wine and beer, that is, from dilute alcohol, is another bacterial activity. So, too, is the formation of butyric acid from milk, and of lactic acid from certain sugars. In each case, the bacterium concerned is known and pictured, and a knowledge of methods of controlling its activity has now become essential to the carrying on of great industries, such as the manufacture of vinegar and the protection of wine and beer from souring. The butyric and the lactic ferments are of essential importance in the dairy industries, souring of milk and manufacture of butter and of cheese. The butyric bacterium a few years ago attacked a valuable collection of seashells in the Manchester Museum and destroyed many by reducing them to a powder which was found to be butyrate of calcium. Many bacteria produce colored substances as they grow. Usually the colors are obscured by mixture unless the bacteria are grown in pure cultures. Some bacteria become themselves colored, as for instance the Micrococcus prodigiosus, which grows on bread and gives it the appearance of having been stained with blood. It spreads over all the bread in an infected locality and causes much alarm. Other kinds cause reddening of dried codfish and of cheese. Another self-colored kind is the peach-colored bacterium, Bacterium rubicens, which is common on dead leaves and twigs in old ponds and also in pools above tide mark on the seashore. Bacteria diffusing yellow pigment with a green fluorescence into the jelly on which they are cultivated are common in river water, and others which produce blue, violet, and green pigments diffused in the nutrient medium in which they are cultivated. One such is responsible for the blue-green color of pus. Certain essential chemical changes in the extraction of indigo blue from the indigo plant are due to a bacillus which naturally occurs on the leaves of the plant. So, too, the peculiar fermentations which give special flavors to different kinds of tobacco are due to special bacteria, as are also the much-valued flavors of tea and of cocoa. These bacteria can be encouraged or checked by appropriate treatment. The manufacture of cheese is dependent on the action of lactic acid-producing bacteria upon the curd produced by rennet. In the later stages of ripening, both of cheese and of butter, special flavors are developed by various special kinds of bacteria. Over 100 species of bacteria 
bacilli, and micrococci have been described and distinguished which can produce lactic acid in milk. Special cultures of bacteria giving special qualities and flavor to milk or to cream are carefully prepared and used by manufacturers. Bacteria are further important to the dairy industries owing to the fact that serious defects, such as bitter cheese, red cheese, putrid cheese, and also poisonous cheese, as well as similar defects in butter, such as turnip flavor, oiliness, and bitterness, are due to certain kinds of them and can be avoided by adequate knowledge of what favors and what arrests the growth of several kinds. The flavors of cheese characteristic of this or that locality are due to the combined activity of many kinds of bacteria and of some molds, a combination differing in each locality and practically peculiar to it. As many as 80 different species of bacteria have been described by one investigator as occurring in one kind of cheese. Tanning, the soaking of raw hides in liquid by which they are converted into leather, is another industry in which different bacteria have at different stages of the process an all-important action. They have been very imperfectly studied. The cases above cited are a few samples of the many industries connected with the preparation of food or animal or vegetable substances for manufacturing purposes in which bacteria are of essential importance and are being more and more studied and brought under control. Two very definite and obvious results of bacterial activity are a. the production of heat and b. the production of light without heat, commonly called phosphorescence. The heating of hay and of cotton waste and of malt is often set up in the chemical processes of bacterial fermentation and under certain atmospheric conditions may be so intense as to result in conflagration, as it were, a spontaneous combustion. Luminous bacteria. On the other hand, phosphorescence, the production of light without heat, is caused by the life and growth of some kinds of bacteria. Many marine organisms, such as the minute noctiluca, jellyfish, sea worms, crustacea, and shellfish, as well as insects, such as the glowworms and fireflies, are phosphorescent. From any sample of seawater, it is easy by appropriate methods of cultivation to obtain a crop of phosphorescent bacilli, which may be kept alive in a flask for an indefinite period, and will make the liquid, a meat broth, in which they are growing, glow brightly like a lamp when shaken up with atmospheric oxygen. Different species of phosphorescent bacteria are distinguished. All appear to be marine or of marine origin. Occasionally, all the meat in the butcher shops at a seaside town gets infected and glows in a ghostly way by night. Bones and bits of meat lying on a dust heap become, in warm, damp weather, infested in patches with these phosphorescent growths. A very curious case is that of the infection of sandhoppers living above tide mark on a weed-strewn shore by one species of phosphorescent bacilli. They were first observed near Bologna and later at Oostraham on the Normandy coast, but have not been hitherto reported from the British shore. The phosphorescent bacilli make their way into the blood of the sandhoppers and multiply there to such an extent that the little shrimps shine at night like glowworms and are indeed mistaken by casual observers for such. A dozen or so may be picked up on a summer's night as one walks along the sands. They are all the more easily picked up since they have become almost incapable of crawling, 
let alone hopping, owing to this wonderful luminous infection. The phosphorescent bacteria cause chemical changes in the blood of the sandhoppers of a poisonous nature, in fact a disease, and the infected sandhopper rapidly dies. It is a puzzling fact from the point of view of, quote, the origin of species by the selection of favored races and the struggle for existence, unquote, that the two points in which this phosphorescent bacterium, which gets into and multiplies in the sandhopper's blood, arrests our attention as differing from any ordinary bacillus, are its power of producing phosphorescent or light-giving material and also of producing a poison, deadly to these little shrimps. Yet it assuredly requires greater ingenuity than has been applied to the case to show that it is of any advantage to the bacillus to glow like a glowworm or to poison the harmless shrimp. How then did these faculties become fixed in this parasitic race of bacilli, faculties which seem likely to be as injurious to its own life as favorable to it? It is no advantage to these phosphorescent bacteria, nor indeed to other marine luminous organisms, to attract attention to themselves by lighting up. All that they require in life is a moderate supply of their accustomed food, which they find in a shrimp's juices. They do not even profit by killing their host. Very few parasites do. They are likely to perish with their host. In most cases of parasitism, after a certain period, a sort of balance is effected between parasite and host. The former does not multiply so as to seriously injure the latter, since it is not the host's death which is beneficial to the parasite, but rather the perennial provision by the host of nourishment for his guest. We must leave the phosphorescent, death-dealing parasite of the sandhopper as a puzzle for future inquirers. The bacteria of the sea comprise many kinds peculiar to it. The matter has not been very carefully studied, but it has been stated that the water of great ocean depths is free from bacteria, and that putrefaction does not occur in those regions because there is not a sufficient supply of putrescible matter to maintain a seething pot, or witch's cauldron, of endless varieties of bacteria, such are the soil and the more shallow waters of the globe. Disease-carrying bacteria. Bacteria causing disease. The poison-producing quality of the phosphorescent bacillus brings us to a momentous subject, that of pathogenic bacteria, the study of which has developed of late years into a vast and most important branch of medical inquiry. It now appears that nearly all infectious diseases of men and animals, and many of plants, are due to the parasitism in the living body of bacteria of many different kinds. A very few infectious diseases, such as malaria, are traced to equally minute parasites, which are regarded as protozoa, that is, of animal nature rather than vegetable. Spreading wherever their special nourishment, dead organic matter, occurs, many species of bacteria infest the skin and surface secretions of animals, but beyond causing foul-smelling decompositions, do no harm. Various kinds have spread from the surface into the alimentary canal by way of the mouth, some into the bladder and the air passages by way of their external apertures. The contents of the intestines form a rich culture ground for putrefactive species of bacteria. Nearly half the bulk of the intestinal contents in man and other animals consists of bacteria, including a very large number of distinct kinds, all requiring much further study and experiment.
Most of these do not cause any injury to the host, but may even assist in the process of digestion. Poisonous products are often formed by them in small quantity and tolerated by the infected host. But from time to time, owing to special condition of the host or to the entrance of special malignant species, active poison-producing bacteria multiply in excess in the intestine and cause deadly disease. Typhoid or enteric fever, oriental cholera, dysentery, and various kinds of diarrhea have been thus traced to definite intrusive species of bacteria. Bacteria, bacilli, leptothrix, and spirilla abound in the mouth and are the active causes of the decay of the teeth and toothache. The bacterium which causes the ammoniacal fermentation of urine sometimes establishes itself in the bladder and produces disease. The deadly tubercle bacillus is taken into the lungs, though also entering by the alimentary canal, and a putrefactive bacterium makes its way through the nose into the air passages in the bones of the face. To prove the agency of a particular bacterium as the cause of a disease, it is accepted by bacteriologists as necessary to obtain in the first place a pure culture of the suspected bacterium and then to inoculate with it a perfectly healthy animal previously free from it. Then, if the bacterium is found to multiply and flourish in the inoculated animal and the symptoms of the disease supposed to be caused by the bacterium appear in the animal, the conclusion that the bacterium is the cause or agent of the disease is rendered highly probable. But this is not finally accepted until it has been confirmed by many trials under varying test conditions. Many pathogenous bacteria are able to live either as spores or in active growth and movement for a greater or less length of time in the soil or water, and so spread from one victim to another. This is true of the bacteria causing typhoid, cholera, and anthrax, or malignant pustule, and of others, but the presence of common putrefactive bacteria is often antagonistic to the life of specialized pathogenous species. Some of the latter require the cooperation of other species, for example, the deadly tetanus or lockjaw bacillus, which gets into wounds polluted by rich soil, is killed by the phagocytes of the blood and fails to produce its terrible poison unless it is accompanied, as it usually is, by septicemic bacteria, which attract the phagocytes and so enable the tetanus bacilli to multiply in the wound and produce their poison, which is rapidly absorbed. Another wound infection, called gas gangrene, which was frequent in the Great War, arises from the cooperation of three, and possibly of four, distinct species of bacillus. Lister discovered that the dangerous putrefaction of wounds, whether resulting from necessary surgical operations, or from accident or from hostile assault, is due to the growth in the wounded tissue of septic or poison-producing bacteria. He introduced, with world-famous success, the use of antiseptic dressing and great cleanliness for the purpose of excluding such bacteria from the wounded surface. Paragraph 9. How Bacteria Are Carried The mode of access of pathogenic bacteria to the animal body is a matter of prime importance. The living tissues are protected by the skin, and those bacteria which cannot gain access through the natural apertures to the cavities of the body lined by soft, penetrable mucous membrane have to pass through the dry, horny skin by way of accidental cracks and scratches 
or else by attaching themselves to the parasitic insects which pierce the skin for the purpose of blood sucking, such as fleas, flies, bugs, ticks, and lice. The germ which causes hydrophobia has not yet been satisfactorily identified, but it is established that it is brought into man's body through wounds inflicted by the teeth of dogs or other animals suffering from the deadly infection of rabies. The hydrophobia germ is present in the rabid animal's saliva. The organism causing typhus or jail fever has been shown by experiment to be introduced into man by the louse, although it also has not yet been isolated. Yellow fever is due to a microbe, probably a bacterium, which is injected into man by the stab of a species of gnat, the Stegomyia fasciata, but the microbe has not been isolated. The bacterium causing trench fever is carried by the louse. Relapsing fever, famine fever, is caused by a motile spirillum, which is carried by the common bedbug and is introduced into man by its bite. The most terrible of these insect-carried pathogenous bacteria, looking as it does like an ordinary short bacillus with nothing peculiar about it, is that which causes the historic disease known as plague. It is carried by a wandering species of flea, the Pulix chiopis, from the rat to man. Pathogenous bacteria are sometimes carried by higher animals to which they are innocuous. The carrier becomes, as it were, a reservoir of a dangerous bacterium, injurious to man or other animals, but not to the carrier. Such is the history of the bacterium which causes Malta fever. After its discovery by General Bruce, it was shown that it infects the goats from which the milk supply of Malta is obtained, and whilst doing them little or no injury, passes in their milk to the human population, especially to the sailors and soldiers in the government hospital. The discovery has led to the supervision of the goats and the practical suppression of the dangerous and disabling fever. Not unfrequently, men and women become insusceptible to the poison of typhoid or in other instances of cholera bacilli. Such persons are found then to act as carriers of these deadly germs and spread them and infect other persons, though they are themselves immune. Blood poisoning of various kinds, pyemia, is shown to be due to specific bacteria. So are erysipelas, diphtheria, glanders, various kinds of catarrh, and influenza. In the last case, the bacterium is not yet precisely known, and we are consequently not so well able to deal with it as we may hope to be in the future. The disease called syphilis is due to a spirillum-like form. The bacillus of tubercle, discovered by Koch in 1882, infects various tissues and organs, and multiplying to excess causes destruction of the lungs, glands, and other organs invaded. It is not rapid, though it is sure, in its destructive action. Allied to the bacillus of tubercle is that of leprosy, even more slow in its growth. It was discovered by Hansen of Bergen in 1871, 11 years earlier than the tubercle bacillus. The bacillus of leprosy enters the human body from infected persons through wounds or ulcerous surfaces. The broken skin surfaces through which it enters are due to a scorbutic condition set up by defective diet, such as dried fish, absence of fresh meat, and vegetables. Wherever the diet of a population has improved in these respects, leprosy has died out. Forty years ago, there were 250 lepers in the leper house of Bergen, Norway. 
Now there are only some 40 or 50, and these are all the cases known in Norway. Formerly in Western Europe, including the British Isles, leprosy was abundant. Leper houses and special lepers' doors in the churches were very generally provided. There is hope that tubercle, thesis, and its other forms may eventually disappear in a similar way. It is not possible to find space here for more than the bare enumeration of some of the chief bacterial diseases of man given above. Scarlet fever, smallpox, and measles are almost certainly bacterial diseases also, but as yet the bacterium responsible in these fevers has not been seen and isolated for study. Paragraph 10. Bacteria of the Soil Finally, three classes of bacteria, very important in their chemical action upon water and the soil, must be mentioned. They are the sulfur, the iron, and the nitrogen bacteria. The sulfur bacteria are remarkable for their dependence on sulfuretted hydrogen, the gas liberated, together with marsh gas, in ponds and marshes by the action of the abundant bacteria above mentioned, which attack and break up the cellulose or woody matter of vegetable refuse. The sulfur bacteria flourish by oxidizing the sulfuretted hydrogen in such waters, taking up the sulfur and storing it as granules in their own protoplasm. Peach-colored or purple sulfur bacteria of many varieties of form and growth are abundant in stagnant pools, forming wine-colored sheets of incrustation. There is urgent need for further study of these peach-colored bacteria. Colorless sulfur bacteria of large size and very distinct shape and growth, including a large range of form, namely Coccus, Leptothrix, and Spirillum, known as Begiatoa, are abundant in natural warm springs, which bubble with sulfuretted hydrogen gas. The great deposits of pure sulfur in the tertiary strata of Sicily are due to these sulfur bacteria. The black mud of stagnant pools is due to the production of black iron sulfide by the action of sulfuretted hydrogen upon iron salts in the soil. Iron bacteria are described which flourish in natural waters containing the soluble bicarbonate of iron. The bacteria become thickly encrusted with a reddish-brown deposit of ferric hydroxide, and sometimes the supply pipes of waterworks become clothed with this deposit due to a chemical attraction and oxidation exercised by a special species of bacteria. The nitrogen bacteria are of supreme importance in relation to the supply of nitrogen in the form necessary as the food of green plants. They are one of the chief agents in natural waters and in the soil and must be regarded as the basis of agriculture and all cultivation of green plants. One set, called the nitrosobacteria, are the agents of the conversion into nitrites of the ammonia, NH3, which is a final term of proteid putrefaction. But nitrites are not what the green plant needs. It must have nitrates. A distinct set of soil bacteria, the nitratobacteria, are to hand, and it is they which are concerned in the oxidation of nitrites into nitrates. But the green plant's need for nitrogen is yet further met by another and most remarkable kind of bacteria, which can actually seize free uncombined nitrogen from the atmosphere and convert it into compounds capable of feeding the green plant. These nitrogen-seizing bacteria are widely present in arable soil, and further, they attack the roots of the great food-producing order of plants, the leguminosae, which includes our peas and beans, vetches and clover, 
and entering there caused the growth on the rootlets of characteristic nodules in which they accumulate. They are known as Bacterium radicicolum and enable the pea and bean plants to seize and assimilate free atmospheric nitrogen when there is a deficient supply of nitrates from other sources. This has been proved experimentally on a large scale. The nitrogen-seizing bacterium of the nodules can be cultivated independently of the green plant in appropriate solutions and has been prepared in quantity as a commercial article to be introduced into soils deficient in nitrogenous salts. It yet remains to note in this connection that another distinct set of bacteria is known and is at present the subject of experiment, which has the power of deoxidizing nitrates in the soil and, yet more remarkable, of liberating ammonia and free nitrogen gas. Sewage as manure and as pollution These two subjects each occupy the life work of many accomplished chemists employed in large public institutions. Great works are erected for the purpose of bringing crude sewage into the best form for the nourishment of plants by the activities of a succession of bacteria, the putrefactive, the cellulose-destroying, the ammonia-forming, the nitrous, and the nitrate kinds, of which we have briefly written above. This is one vital and constantly growing industry. Another line of work arises from the necessity of preserving some considerable portion of the waters of our streams and rivers in such a state of purity as is needful to render it unlikely to produce disease when used as the daily drink of a dense population of human beings. The water drawn from rivers for human consumption is liable to contain pathogenous bacteria such as those of typhoid, cholera, dysentery, etc., especially when the excreta of the populations of large towns situated on its banks are conveyed by sewers or otherwise into the river. Legislation has done much to prevent the excess of such contamination, which once was general. Nowadays, the river water supplied by water companies is, to a great extent, protected from pollution, under Act of Parliament, by the separate treatment of sewage in special works, and the water is freed from an excess of bacteria by sedimentation, by precipitation, Clark's process, by filtration, and by exposure in great tanks to sunlight. In some difficult cases, chemical purification by ozone or by chlorine has been used. The number and kinds of bacteria present in the water at different stages of its passage through the reservoirs of the pumping stations are recorded with precision, and a special attention is given to the number present per cubic centimeter of certain indicative bacteria due to contamination by human and animal excreta. Such are the Bacillus coli communis and the Bacillus enterotitis sporogenes. The possible carriage by water, thus humanly contaminated, of the bacteria of typhoid, cholera, and other diseases derived from the sewage of a town or village where those diseases are present, but not yet notified, is a very real danger, and steps are taken by the authorities to prevent the contamination when discovered. Paragraph 11. The preceding pages may serve to give the reader an outline of the extraordinarily varied and vitally important branches of knowledge which have grown up and are still developing around the infusion animacules of Schwann, the Vibranonia of Ehrenberg. The practical demands of human industry and sanitation 
have led to the production of an immense body of detailed knowledge as to the chemical activities and life conditions of many special kinds. But the investigation of those kinds, not concerned in disease nor in manufacturing processes, has been comparatively neglected. It is the study of these less specialized kinds of bacteria which will in the future help us to a better understanding of the origin and natural history of these astonishing and ubiquitous organisms. Note, Pasteur did not distinguish by name and description the various kinds of organisms producing the fermentations which he studied. He called them all microbes, an abbreviation of microbionta, a convenient term which has come into general use. End of section 4